And the best thing I seen this weekend was, I don't know, leaving East Lansing. So, all right, <laughs> that's that's it for me. Have a good have a good night, guys. Go blue. Go blue. Huntsman or a player that made you pay the cost that now assumes relaxed positions and prostitutes your loss. Were you tortured by your own thirst in those pleasures that you seek that made you Tom the curious that makes you James the weak? Something going Something you call unique But I've seen yourself pretty showing As the tears roll down your cheeks Soon you know I'll leave you And I'll never look behind Cause I was born for the purpose That crucifies your mind So can't convince your mirror As you've always done before Well, uh, good evening and welcome to another edition of Grey Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. My name is Dick Whaley. And I'm Jim Dwyer. Elections galore around the globe. Uh, shocking sort of results from Canada. Uh, the uh, degree of the trouncing? Yeah, because, you know, it, it was interesting. The polls showed that that was going to be kind of, it had been up and down the last three months, or I should say six weeks. I don't think they, the Canadians are sensible enough not to have uh, elections that last more than three months. But uh, Harper just made a lot of mistakes down the stretch, and yeah, these results are incredible. Uh, remember that Canada, we'll just start with them uh, briefly, um, they have a kind of a winner-take-all system. Yes, they have a parliament. It's like Great Britain parliament, but it's a winner-take-all system. So frequently the governments there uh, don't even have uh, 40% of the vote. In fact, I think Justin Trudeau only got 39. But it was the margin, and it was the decline of fringe parties. Quebecois has gone down. And the New Democrats... Uh, really got uh, trounced as well. Um, I mean, this is pretty shocking. The Liberals soared from 34 seats to 184 seats in the 338-seat parliament, while the Conservatives shed 60 and the New Democrats lost 59. So you can see from those numbers that uh, the Liberal Party uh, gained quite a bit from some of the third parties, including probably the Quebecois and uh, the New Democrats had a, a rather astonishing upgrade in the previous election, but it looks like they've really faded. And uh, it's kind of interesting. Uh, I don't buy into this sort of dynasty nonsense. I just think that uh, 
Justin Trudeau was sort of the right man with the right message at the right time. Well, as we mentioned last week, Harper was definitely adversely affected by the declining Canadian dollar and the loss of market share that the very expensive and messy, uh, some would say dangerously polluting uh, car, uh, coal, Tar sands. Yeah, the Alberta tar uh, the Alberta sands. Tar sands. Terrible stuff. Uh, just a complete uh, economic, dis- uh, environmental disaster. Um, so what the liberals will be able to do with this weakened uh, Canadian dollar, of course, remains to be seen. But I think just on a charismatic level, I think it's pretty clear that the, the young Trudeau lad is uh, a sort of a people-pleasing politician and... Uh, could be something like a Canadian Bill Clinton. Well, it's interesting that he sort of had a throwback message to his father about the tolerance and inclusiveness of Canada Mm -hmm. as a country. Uh, We mentioned last week sort of briefly that the niqab had become a big sort of last-second issue that Harper might have overplayed his hand on. And obviously... Canada is sort of like the United States. There's kind of a decade where there's a swing one way and then it swings mm. back the other. Uh, Justin Trudeau, by the way, is not adamantly opposed to the tar sands, but he is seemingly willing to maybe mothball it for a while. I don't know. We'll see what happens on that score. But uh, it's kind of interesting that the term liberal has become a pejorative around the the globe almost. Even the Democratic Party uh, lately when they've run candidates for president will say that they're progressive. Mm. Uh, I think Ronald Reagan was successful at using the word liberal as the equivalent of socialist. But liberal, of course, is not a pejorative word. It's a great concept of political philosophy that goes back to, um, you know, the the origin of sort of Western political thinking. And uh, even libertarianism is a concept about liberalism. Uh, Both from the Enlightenment. Yeah, and neoliberalism is another strange uh, word that has kind of strange... Connotations. Yeah, the term certainly has been uh, used as a pejorative in this country for a long time, and much in the same way that uh, organized labor has been uh, completely vilified as though it were uh, some sort of uh, external terror force rather than an actual organization of uh, American working people. Uh, But let's face it, I mean, over the span of time, the term conservative has ceased to carry any meaning whatsoever. I mean, most of the people who self-identify as conservatives are, in the current American political context, extremists. Yeah, they're reactionaries, and it's odd that that word is not used more in the United States uh, lexicon to describe what's really going on with, uh, say, the Freedom Caucus, which, of course, I don't see any connection with freedom involving them. And what they've been trying to do. Um, It's interesting that, of course, in the hearings last week involving Benghazi, many of the uh, members of the Spanish Inquisition, shall we say. uh, Have you got all the... 
the, the cushion fluffed up on one end. <laughs> you know, they were the Spanish Inquisition, and they fell on their face, their sword, their cross. And for 11 hours? Well, and the question, I mean, I didn't watch a minute of it, but I certainly heard the wrap-up and read uh, accounts the next day. But you have a guy named Pompeo, <laughs> which is wonderful in and of itself, from Kansas. I think his first name is Mike, member of the Freedom Caucus. Before the hearings, he had called the scandal worse than Watergate. This, These sorts of overstatements are ludicrous. Um, it's ironic that the day before Hillary Clinton actually testified, and of course she came out and across as calm, professional, polished, prepared, and all the things that she's good at. Let's remember that she served on the Watergate committee as a junior staffer. Oh, that's right. So she has pretty good experience at this kind of congressional inquisition, shall we say. But yeah, she just basically shot them all down. And one of the problems with the Freedom Caucus's approach to the whole Benghazi scandal is that they're trying to prove a conclusion that they have in their brains, but they're just missing all of the actual facts. The premises are all wrong. And the day before um, Hillary did her appearance, which I think was Thursday, of last week. I was reading um, the newly released Watergate Tapes, a book by Douglas Brinkley, and I had completely forgotten this incident, but it was kind of interesting that on the 1st of March, 1973, the American ambassador to the Sudan and his military charge d'affaires were kidnapped uh, in Sudan by Black September. They were actually at a dinner hosted by Saudi Arabia. Uh, they were kidnapped and... Black September, the... Of the PLO. Of the PLO, yeah. Yeah, and it's it's just interesting to, to, to follow Nixon's discussions for the next couple of days about this crisis because they were executed, the uh, ambassador and um, the American military charge d'affaires. There was a Belgian diplomat that was also murdered. The Arabs uh, that were kidnapped in this operation were set free. And Nixon was, was even talking to William Rogers, his Secretary of State, in a kind of lengthy conversations about protocol and, you know, putting the flags at half-mask and uh, getting the body returned to Belgium and all that for the, the Belgian regime because diplomacy is is what Hillary Clinton, that's what her job was during Benghazi. She's, she wasn't in charge of security. Or military intelligence, which of course is part of the secret problem with why there was an attack there at all. Yeah, and this is the sort of the, the, the 800-pound gorilla in the room. This was a CIA compound. They keep using the word CIA annex. Does the CIA have annexes? I'm sure they annex what they need. <laughs> they have appendix. Uh, here's appendices. Here's your notice. Yeah. yeah. So there, there's a kind of a, a story here that the Republicans are have overreached on. And if you'll recall, the goalposts on their story has changed three times. During the presidential campaign, 
Mitt Romney at one point in one of the debates tried to accuse Obama of not using the word terrorism to describe the Benghazi attack. That's when Candy Crowley, who was moderating the debate, got into a brief exchange with Mitt Romney, pointing out, no, the, the tapes show that he did use the word terrorism. So they're they're having, but a, he didn't say it enough. He didn't emphasize right. it enough. That he, was the response. That it was a, a performance. You're not performing the role of president in the way that I feel you should. Yeah, and of course, one of the controversies in the 2012 uh, presidential election was that the Obama administration, early in their presidency, had decided to downgrade the ridiculous phrase "the global war on terrorism," as which a, was always BS. Yeah, as a kind of a talking point. Right. So this was a talking point. Well, later, of course, the Republicans used the Benghazi attack to go after Susan Rice. Mm. Susan Rice had been appointed after Hillary Clinton resigned uh, following Obama's reelection as the Secretary of State designate designatee. And what had happened was Susan Rice had used the Hmm. The talking points of the CIA and, quote, other American intelligence agencies to um, go on the Sunday talk shows and try and link this uh, attack where the intelligence was still coming in. The raw data was still sort of uh, unknown and unknowable. Well, she tried to claim that this, this was connected to a video a Muslim, anti-Muslim video that had appeared in the American media somewhere mm -hmm. before this whole thing. Well, it's quite obvious to me that the attack was connected to the 9-11 anniversary. It happened on 9-11. Yet this is never mentioned in the, in the debate about all of this. Um, so the talking points of the Republican Party, the scandal itself, they keep trying to change the focus of what they're arguing about. And, of course, it doesn't make any sense because nobody went after Richard Nixon in March of 73 or William Rogers, who was the Secretary of State, about this tragedy that had happened in the Sudan. Black September, for the record, were the, the people involved in the Olympic Munich, uh, Munich terror terrorism episode, yeah. in, in 1972 and had been expelled— um, from Jordan by King Hussein. Uh, they were sort of scattered around um, in Beirut and, and whatnot and eventually ended up in Tunisia. Um, this is when King Hussein of Jordan sort of turned on the PLO, so to speak, and became more allied with the United States their demands, by the way, were the release of um, their fellow terrorists, whatever you want to call them, in uh, Jordanian jails and whatnot. And obviously Nixon was, quote, not going to negotiate with terrorists. But there was no hysteria back in 1973 about this incident. In fact, I'd completely forgotten about it. And the only reason that I remember and was sort of somewhat bemused by the conversations about the Watergate tapes regarding this incident, was that the very next day, uh, Nixon calls up B.B. Rebozo 
to invite him to a black tie dinner at the White House. What's the attraction? Because Bibi actually jokingly says to Nixon, oh, I thought you were going to appoint me ambassador to Khartoum. <laughs> oh, Bibi. <laughs> and Nixon was somewhat uh, silent in the exchange and said, oh, no, no, we're having a get-together tonight. And then they have a joke about the black tie dinner, and Nixon tells Bibi not to bring any mustard. <laughs> I don't know what that's about. <laughs> uh, they used to frolic about at the pool, and maybe they ate hot. Don't spike the punch, perhaps, is <laughs> yeah. what that means. Maybe, maybe they, right, exactly. Or maybe they had a thing about eating hot dogs at the pool. Who knows? But the thing that was so amusing about this situation and this B.B. Rebozo-Nixon conversation was that the entertainment that night was Sammy Davis Jr. All right. <laughs> and the humor of of the idea of Nixon and P.P. Rebozo at the White House with Sammy Davis Jr. Uh, well, is that that uh, get together might be the source of that famous photo of a very uncomfortable Richard Nixon uh, being warmly embraced by uh, the one and only Sammy Davis Jr. And he did endorse Nixon in '72. He did. Yeah. He, he appeared on stage a couple of times with him. In fact, he might have even been at the Republican. Uh, National Convention in Miami, um, and the subsequent conversation with Rogers that substantively did, did dealt with the Sudan situation. Uh, Rogers apologizes; he regrets missing the entertainment, <laughs> and uh, he asked Nixon, "How was it?" And Nixon is, "Oh, it was great. It was, it was wonderful." Well, Sammy Davis Jr. Uh... Very talented performer, and the no denying. Inadvertent humor of all of that is just remarkable stuff. But it it is just a, another reminder that this whole incident uh, being exploited for political purposes can't work. Right, and it hasn't worked because it's a kind of a dead issue. Now I don't think Hillary Clinton has dealt uh, or or gotten rid of the email controversy, despite. Um, um, Bernie Sanders's uh, comments in the last debate, but it is kind of fascinating when you begin to look at all of the the details about these emails. They're 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 somewhat uh, it, it's somewhat dubious what where they're trying to go even with this. Uh, the New York Times, for instance, has an article about the FBI investigating the emails. This was after a portion of some sixty thousand. Uh, emails that Hillary Clinton, this was a couple of weeks ago, had sent or received as Secretary of State. And uh, the reporters, who are uh, longtime national security-type reporters for the New York Times, Eric Lipton and Michael Schmidt, right, there is no evidence that any of the emails uh, were hacked or caused any harm to American interests. And law enforcement officials have said, She's not the target of the investigation. Well, then they go into the details about a couple of the uh, emails that have raised the hackles of the Judicial Watch and Rush Limbaugh and Mike Pompeo and Trey Gowdy and Mike Huckabee, no doubt. Sarah Palin, I'm sure, um, are, involve emails that are based on 
published sources where the government is saying, well, this should have been classified. Well, why should it have been classified if somebody's sending Hillary Clinton an email about a newspaper article that they read? Our source was the New York Times. You've got it. And um, it says, for instance, a third email under scrutiny, and I won't go through all these gory details, included a copy of a New York Times article about the CIA lethal drone program, which is classified in the email. Uh, State Department officials complain about aspects of the article. Intelligence officials say that the comments about the article should have uh, also made the uh, correspondence top secret. So in other words, the sender of the email was responsible for changing the classification. But it's a little unclear to me how an email about an article published in the New York Times should be either labeled classified or top secret after the fact. Maybe if they'd stashed them in a pumpkin. Yeah, exactly. It amounts to about the same thing. It's it's just something that anybody had access to anyway. So a lot of the linguistics that they're throwing around here about top secret, classified, declassified, this, that, and the other, is I mean, it's all nonsense. We know that the government overclassifies documents to begin with. And then when they finally declassify them, the documents are half the documents blacked out anyway. Right. Um, or it's the most mundane information that... Uh, you wonder why it was ever classified. Because, you know, the government itself decides what's going to be declassified. Then they do the editing, the so-called redacting. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of hoopla about these words. But at the, at the end of the day, these documents are not don't have much secret information. Uh, you know, you mentioned the pumpkin. And, you know, even in the Hiss uh, Chambers case that Nixon, of course, is referring to constantly throughout Watergate how to exploit the congressional investigation of this matter, Mm -hmm. which you use executive session, and then you bring people out for public confrontations about testimony where a witness doesn't really know what somebody else has testified about, hoping to catch them in some sort of mischievous lie or, quote, cover-up, unquote. There are cover-ups by the government, no doubt about it. But the Benghazi case is not one of them. (laughs) There have been numerous investigations into what happened. Christopher Stevens tragically lost his life because he flew from Tripoli to Benghazi and, as the saying goes, went down with the ship. And there's no question that the um, compound in question was overwhelmed by superior forces what do budget cuts have to do with that? What 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 does the government sequestration situation in 2012 have to do with that? Remember that the GOP went to great lengths to shut the government down in 2011. This Freedom Caucus that keeps talking about the deficit has never come up with the $24 billion that that cost back in 2011. This is all a sham. Well, and again, I just want to mention the CIA's propensity to use diplomatic official ambassadorial cover for their secret machinations. Yeah, and of course, this is done by other countries. Of course, but it, it you know it, it automatically renders the whole uh, diplomatic process uh, hypocritically flawed and vulnerable. Yeah. And of course, the Secretary of State is is a, is a, is the head diplomat. They're not in charge with mundane matters regarding security. That is actually 
the responsibility of another part of the U.S. government. Mm-hmm. And it is ridiculous to claim that Hillary Clinton is somehow responsible. So when Mike Pompeo went on a very lengthy inquisition about Sidney Blumenthal, and few people can ever remember who he was, but yeah, he's an old friend of the Clintons. He had Cl- Hillary Clinton's email address and personal address. They sometimes have white wine and brie together, perhaps. I don't know. But it's sort of silly to kind of insinuate that because he has this privileged information that there's some cover-up involved. Because Pompeo's point was, well, Stevens has didn't have your personal email. And he even asked Hillary if he'd ever been to her house. And I'm kind of like, no, he works in the diplomatic corps. Uh, there's 190 other sovereign nations. Hillary has... So we're know, all pals and we're going to hang out? Right. <laughs> and, of course, there's certainly been examples of uh, ambassadors in certain countries um, being given a sinecure, so to speak, mm-hmm. as a reward for campaign contributions. There's no evidence of that. In fact, I'm sure that the Christopher Stevens posting in Libya was not a desirable place to be. There's a civil war going on. The United States doesn't have either assets on the ground. In fact, the facts about Libya, and of course, Donald Trump is back in the news for claiming the Middle East would be better off without Saddam Hussein and Gaddafi being overthrown, and perhaps he's correct. Uh, But the United States had had, quite frankly, terrible diplomatic relations with Gaddafi, for most of his uh, dictatorship. Uh, One of the few presidents that had good relations with Gaddafi for a while was Richard Nixon. (laughs) And Well, he was the official uh, Ronald Reagan whipping boy. Exactly. day one. Uh, When Reagan was inaugurated the first time, the word on the streets was, Libyan hit squad is going to be there. And so the city was made to take extra precautions for another fiction. And that, of course, turned out to be an organized disinformation campaign by the National Security Council under Oliver North, Mm -hmm. John Poindexter, uh, that whole crew. Uh, Gaddafi, of course, um, was overthrown. The United States sort of got involved in that reluctantly at the last second. Believe it or not, that was actually the main impetus of Sarkozy. Sarkozy was running for re-election. He needed to bolster his um, polls. Mm -hmm. And they were using uh, the migrant crisis and whatnot as sort of a pretext, a callous belli, to go in to Libya and overthrow Gaddafi. It was actually Gaddafi who, quote, destroyed his alleged weapons of mass destruction following the American invasion of, of Iraq and got back into the into better graces with the Bush administration. So if we're going to have a, quote, investigation, to paraphrase Trey Gowdy, about all the facts regarding Benghazi, let's start with the April 1986 bombing of Benghazi by Ronald Reagan. Yeah. How about those documents? And obviously the debate about emails and servers, whether they're secure or not, or whether they can be hacked, well, what do you think I was born yesterday? These are problems that are happening weekly in corporate America. Yeah. <laughs> Is it secure? Of course it's not secure. 
Well, those were the early days of email communications back in 86, certainly not for the general public, but within the realm of the government, for sure. sure. I mean, that's where it, of course, originates. Uh, I was actually living in Washington, D.C. when that attack happened, and the uh, anxiety it provoked throughout the city uh, was remarkable. And again, it just testifies to this way in which the uh, government has used Libya, uh, the Reagan era, which is what that was, uh, as a consistent method by which to just ratchet up fear, which, of course, uh, gives people the idea that, well, maybe we should spend more on the military. Yeah, and the other thing that's fascinating about the email uh, debate and controversy is that's how they nailed Oliver North. Yep. If you go back and you look at the uh, Iran thought Contra, he was deleting things. It was Poindexter and North emails that were thrown out into the public. They didn't put anybody else's yeah. emails out. So they, 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 you know, once Oliver North became the quote fall guy, and he even testified to it before Congress, uh, and those hearings didn't go terribly well. Uh, for some congressmen, uh, George Mitchell being a, a profound exception, he grilled Oliver North fairly effectively. Why? Because he had been a judge. Mm. He was a brilliant questioner. Trey Gowdy and Mike Pompeo, I don't know. They need to go back to the Monty Python uh, crew and, and learn how to ask some questions. Heresy by deed. Heresy by word. I went until five. A three. So, and torture, who knows? An almost fanatical devotion to the Koch brothers. Yes, indeed. Well, uh, you are listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Thanks to Andrew for engineering this evening. We are out of time, and we'll have to get to Benjamin Netanyahu next week. And the As well as Russia and the Arctic Internet. Questionable ideas about the Nazis. <laughs> Unbelievable. That guy's a stooge. Good night. Yazoo City Calling coming up next right on the, this fine station. Sylvester Weaver and William Beasley in the background doing the Bottleneck Blues in 1827 recording. Telling you it's time for Yazoo City Calling here on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name's Jerry Mack, your host this evening for an hour-long excursion into the land of Delta Blues and early urban blues, performed and lived by the men and women who started it all. This selection, the Bottleneck Blues, found on a Yazoo compilation called Bottleneck Blues Guitar Classics, recorded between 1926 and 1937. And uh, Beasley and Weaver uh, mostly playing around, uh, they were Georgians, so they played around Atlanta a lot. Did a little bit of traveling, mostly to Memphis. And uh, Sylvester Weaver had a little bit of a career on his own as a solo artist and songwriter. Anyway, all that happening for you on a Monday evening, a fine, crisp, clear autumn Monday evening here in southeast lower Michigan. So we hope you enjoy this evening's blue show. Thank you for listening to WCBN. <laughs>